Hi again, everybody. John Porteous of the Lovells Township Historical Society here, and you're listening to the Backcast Podcast. Welcome back. New listeners, welcome aboard. Uh, this week, um, and again, we're still kind of recovering from ge- some geographic challenges, but we're all back up north now, and uh, uh, we've got a pile of podcasts uh, that are really top flight. So we're going to kick it off with Dr. Greg Corus. Greg, uh, <laughs> Greg's got it going on. He's got a uh, his bachelor's in zoo, his master's in biology, and his PhD in forest science. Um, he's conducted forest planning, applied research management, inventory and monitoring on public and private lands um, across the up, upper peninsula, and more recently with the Alpina Montmorency uh, Conservation District. So. I think you'll enjoy this. Uh, Always a chance to learn something new about the trees and the forests that are growing around us. So without further ado, let's go. Preach requirements for your assistance? Not for my assistance. Uh, You know, sometimes (laughs) I'll be helping people with uh, trees in their yards. And although that's not my background, that's more of a arborist or horticulturalist background. Um, I'll help people with everything from under an acre to... You know, some hunt camps are, are over 20,000 acres. Well, you did a podcast in the last season, or a hot stove, rather. And you worked, after that, you worked with some of the local folks around here, right? Right. And uh, I think they were in the neighborhood of 40 acres or so in terms of their ownership. And on the average, I bet you um, I'm working with mostly 80 acres and above. Okay. Cool. Okay. But there is, again, there is no requirement per se for our assistance um all all these landowners are paying taxes and those taxes somehow some way are are really funding my position and many others make it into your paycheck yeah right okay awesome awesome well when you're when you're let's say you're meeting with somebody what What's a conversation go like? What does an experience like that go with, like? Well, what I, I usually try landowners to do, let's say they, they reach out to me and contact me either by phone or email. My first response is I send them this pretty standard email message, and, and there's an attachment to that message. It's what we call a goals form. Okay. And what I try to get is landowners to, to take their thoughts, their desires, their values for their, the property they own and get it down on paper. Get them to think in a really structured way about what they like about their property and what they want to achieve. And once I get that goal form back, I both look at the underlying nature of the property, how it works, how it functions, and the land ownership goals. And I try to mesh those two together as we kind of have a conversation moving forward. Mm-hmm. So it's part it's part educational and it's part... Um, you know, um, use case specific or say again, kind of independent. Oh, use very case. much. Yeah. Yeah. Each case is different. I mean, one thing that inherently sets each property apart is, is the, uh, things such as their soils and their, their, their current, uh, forest condition. So a lot of landowners have similar values, uh, in terms of they might want to hunt fish aesthetics of their property, walking trails, you name it. But what will differ from property to property to property is really their forest. Okay. And so, you know, a one-size-fits-all approach, both to forest and wildlife ecology and management, 
is really something I'm trying to encourage people to get away from. Okay. So don't don't raise your property for a specific thing, but try to be more or holistic? Or? Well, yeah, that, that to some degree. You know, a lot of what in the 20th century we talked about in terms of how we... Um, how we act as, act as stewards was really from this agricultural model um, where, where we could, to some degree, bend and reshape conditions on the landscape to meet our needs. And what we found in the 21st century is in many, many instances, especially when you're talking about natural forest settings, uh, that simply is not ecologically sustainable. Not only are some of our past actions maybe not appropriate for a changing world. We also have all these other things that, that are coming to the forefront, climate change, invasive plants, invasive organisms, you name it. Uh, not to mention, you know, burgeoning human populations. So, yeah, I try to help people to step back from their absolute, I want to do this tomorrow perspective <laughs> to think about, okay, how does a system want to work? And how much can we work within those confines to meet our goals? Well, Greg, and I'm going to kind of key on that one thing, you know, people want to get started right about, um, kind of when we talk about forests, we're talking about tens of hundreds of years, aren't we? Oh, if not more, right? <laughs> and, and one of the things that is a challenge for us is there's a legacy to whatever we do on the land. So in many instances, our current conditions, our legacy effects of what happened many, many years ago, maybe a, a century or more ago. And you know, here in Northern Michigan, of course that gets us to think about the great cutover, uh, subsequent wildfires from that and how that has shaped our forests that we have now. In many ways, our forests we have now are, are simply very, very different than what they once were. And I think we need to understand how we got to where we are now to think about the future. And that is not an easy thing to do because, like you said, it takes decades, if not centuries, for some of these things to develop. Well, we're in a culture where we expect things yeah. and want things to happen right. now. I mean, when you shop at Amazon, you want your thing tomorrow or the next day. You want what we want when yeah. we and, want uh, it. You know, that's <laughs> kind of counterintuitive to what has to happen uh, you know, in order to sustain the forest, like you said. Well, so one of the things I tell a, a new landowner I'm trying to help is I'm the guy that's getting paid by their tax dollars to tell them things that they might not want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> but because I'm free, you know, you can take it or, or leave it. And uh, what we've learned is that um, to some degree, a gardening mentality with forests doesn't necessarily work. And you'll see a lot of people... I mean, for instance, autumn olive. Uh, I don't know how many people are battling autumn olive, a non-native invasive shrub that was really promoted by government agencies in the 80s and the 90s, maybe back into the 70s, and now it's taken over. But that plant, one of the reasons it was promoted is because it met all those checkboxes. It grew fast, uh, a lot of wildlife species of value ate the seeds, and therefore... We're going to plant it, and um, I think we're we're at a different place now where we can learn from our past actions and maybe have to do things differently. But you know, as you're saying, uh, doing things differently is is a challenge sometimes. Well, kind of from a river perspective, um, you know, those are the, 
of us who live along the, the North Branch, um, we see kind of the willow population. I'm kind of thinking maybe that was in vogue at one time uh, to plant willows along the riverbanks. And I suspect that that philosophy may have changed a bit. Well, I, that may be true. Uh, willows are, first off, it's willows usually are in the, uh, the genus Salix. And if you want to get... Um, if you want to get confused, try to figure out what <laughs> species of willow you're dealing with at any point in time. It's an incredibly diverse uh, genus. And um, uh, a lot of the willows that we have now are, in fact, um, products of that great um, uh, turnover on, on our landscape over 100 years ago. So willow is a vigorous uh, re-sprouter. Okay, so it can come back from its roots mm -hmm. after it's disturbed. So those fires way back when really pushed willow on the landscape. And now those willows are basically heading what we call senescence. Or they're just hitting old age. Yeah, life cycling out. And that's right. And we don't have that disturbance to kickstart a new generation. No, that feels... <laughs> yeah, we're not yeah. too yeah. eager to have a yeah. giant fire locally here. <laughs> right. Well, I'm talking about the old age thing. <laughs> But maybe, maybe you would be eager in having some more prescribed fire uh, in certain settings uh, with the right conditions, you name it. Um, for a lot of plants, uh, willows uh, being one example, it can be a revigorating uh, disturbance. Okay. So uh, whether or not a lot of these willows that you know of specifically were planted, I'm sure some were, but... Overall, uh, willows as a species group really like those disturbances and as a rejuvenating factor. So I think that's that's probably at play as much as anything. As as people are seeing willows, if you will, life cycle out along their their riverbanks or on their properties or such, um, as as those trees become deadfall or you know, woody debris. What what's the current thought on what does a property owner put in its place? Yeah. Do you build? Do you put another willow in? Yeah. Or so, from a forest ecology standpoint and a wildlife standpoint, you know, we usually talk about those as stream management zones, and um, you know, in many areas, a stream management zone is one in which we first off suggest often uh, that any management be really light-handed. So uh, put your heavy equipment away right. and start thinking about a shovel. So uh, that said, um, as experienced trout fishermen, you, you know that uh, string cover in that riparian zone is important for keeping those water temperatures down, providing some cover for some fish, providing cover for their food resources, you name it. Uh, and deadwood in systems drive uh, productivity of systems. So deadwood and living materials in stream management zone are critical. And there has to be inputs periodically. So there's a lot of planting that potentially could be done in many of the stream management zones. For instance, here along the north branch. Whether you do willow, which can be browsed heavily by not only whitetails but elk uh, whether you do willows or you do conifers 
kind of up to the landowner. I tend to push a lot of the native conifers, uh, whether that be tamarack uh, or black spruce or balsam fir. Those are three that I push a lot. Northern white cedar is, of course, a, a great tree species in these, these wetter zones. Again, whitetails love to eat them. So yeah. I try to, you know, I don't want landowners to fail in their attempts to do things. Uh, that can discourage them from being active in the future. So you want to set them up for success uh, while working within the confines of the system. So sometimes I'm, I'm suggesting tree species that are not only native to the, the area in which they're working, but also something that might not get eaten tomorrow by, right. by whitetails. So again, black spruce, tamarack, uh, balsam fir, eastern white pine is without a doubt our most adaptable. We call it plastic mm. uh, tree species. It just bends to environmental conditions. When in doubt, plant an eastern white pine. Okay. Good info. Good info. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of excited. We, we just finished up... Uh, uh, re-outfitting our seedlings that we put in what, four and a half years ago that are almost as tall as me now. And so we upgraded the cages and mm -hmm. to that end to keep the deer from mm -hmm. eating that center Yeah, sprout. that terminal bud's really important for some oh, yeah. plant yeah. species. Yeah. But, um, you know, we were talking a little earlier, I, I, we just uh, picked up some more tamarack seedlings yeah. and are going to try to incorporate those uh, in our little nursery area, if you will. Yeah, our lone deciduous conifer, uh, a tamarack or larch. Um, beautiful tree species, especially this time of year. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one thing I, I also try to suggest to landowners, um, in many, many instances, the property they have is something they're going to hand down to the next generation. So if, if they have the uh, interest in thinking really long-term, is to think about climate change effects. Mm -hmm. Tamarack and black spruce and balsam fir, unfortunately in all three of those species, uh, we're at the northern or the southern periphery of their distribution now, basically. So those species are, are marching north a little bit. Well, I was just gonna ask, so that's gonna... Yeah. Most okay. models, uh, those done by the US Forest Service in particular, suggest those species will march north. The more inland you get in Michigan, the more likely that's to occur around the Great Lakes. It seems to buffer the models suggest. So again, you know, when I am constantly talking about a, the, the eastern white pine, that's one of the reasons because that's a tree the models suggest will be part of not only our current settings, but our future setting. And flexible enough to persist. Yes, correct. That's great. Correct. Well, and on that line, you mentioned earlier, and, and I don't want to let this one go by because it's, I think it's super important, the the amount of invasive species that we're dealing with. Um, not insignificant and not easy to purge. <laughs> no, not. Once you let uh, uh, Pandora out of that box. Hard to put the toothpaste back in. Yes, it is. Yes, it yeah. is. And what, are, what are some of the big things that you're seeing as you know not necessarily actionable but stuff that's you know front and center in your radar you know front and center is the fact fact that there's no quick fix to a lot of things yeah. <laughs> and we've talked briefly about you know how long things take to develop in a forest i think a lot of times our mistakes are results of us again trying to get quick fixes um scott's pine 
uh, native trees native to northern Europe was brought here because it was going to be a, a windfall for timber product industry. It was going to go fast like it does in, in Europe and straight. And that hasn't proven true. Uh, and now, actually, in many parts of Alpena County, for instance, and actually, I'd say out in Montmorency as well, it's it's invasive. So you got, from one hand, you got autumn olive and glossy buckthorn and reed canary grass and... Uh, you name it, uh, purple loosestrife is one. Yeah, well, purple loosestrife is on yeah. everybody's tongue, yeah. Um, what was the other? Is mulberries? I, uh, I don't know if mulberry is either considered exotic or invasive. I believe mulberry is a native. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, it, it was some sort of berry, and I apologize because, yeah. you know, this is the beauty of this podcast. We expose how little I know every <laughs> week. So, um. <laughs> But it, it actually it's interesting because a, a lot of the invasives that we have – Woody invasives and shrubs are are berry forming uh, plants because you know a lot of wildlife like those berries, so that that's why they were planted in many instances, um, and those are the ones that uh, again uh, it's it's a major major issue we're dealing with. I would say anywhere from two thirds or more of the landowners I work with have some invasive issue on their property that they themselves are concerned with. Oh, okay. So, so they're aware of it and yes, concerned. Yes, correct. Okay. Mm. okay. I mean, it's 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 amazed me ever since we, we've come up. The purple loose stripe thing really resonates with me because uh, <laughs> my wife actually had it in our garden back in Indianapolis. And so when she was transplanting things, she brought some up. And, yeah. you know, we get up here and we're you know starting to get educated and, you know, hearing people and it's like yeah purple loose stripes the devil and uh, <laughs> it's like you've, you've torn all yours out and destroyed it though yes i i had to you know be the bearer of bad news to my wife and uh, fortunately she understood <laughs> people in your front yard with torches here when we get <laughs> yeah but yeah it's just it's incredible just i guess the the different methodologies that have led to to where we're at now i don't see yeah i I used to live in battle creek and of course that's kellogg country you know and in the day one of the guys that was uh you know one of the executives at kellogg said he set up an arboretum and uh, a property close to where i lived and he brought in purposely every plant that would for that would thrive in that environment or that uh, ecosystem or whatever Uh, if it could grow there he brought it in and he planted it and, uh, you know, I wonder how much of this is, you know, was uh, just guys doing stuff, uh, gardening, oh, uh, I think there's cosmetic some, type Yeah, thing. I yeah. think there is some truth to that, right? Wow. Just trying out things. I, you know, and I, I often find myself talking to groups who I have to be careful with because I don't want to sound like a negative Nancy. Like everything we did in the past is, is wrong and everything we do now is right. It's, it's not how it is. It's... It's more about learning from whatever we've done. And uh, one of the beautiful things about science is that science is constantly changing. I mean, all the time. Mm-hmm. And if we have science as a guiding light to some degree in natural resource management, we force ourselves to some degree to constantly be willing to update our thoughts about how the natural world works. And I think, you know, invasive plants are an example of that. You know, we're, We've learned 
to some degree about why we did things in the past, what the ramifications of those actions are or were, and just to think somewhat differently, you know, in 2022 and, and onward. Well, if you're following the science, sometimes you're going to backtrack. Yes, absolutely. Well, and so do you, do you run concurrent paths that way relative to we need to remediate some of the errors of the past while we evolve and take these new best practices and move forward with them? Do are there overlaps that way, or is yeah, it all just forward looking? No, there's there's lots of overlaps that way. And and one of my mentors once said is um, uh, to me that that any natural resource management, and in most cases we were talking about forests, we got to view them as kind of working hypotheses. Everything we do is is our thought about interactions in 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 the broader world, the ecosystems in which we work in, our thoughts about how actions will result in expected goals and objectives um, and they're just those th their thoughts they're based on some defendable evidence etc but at best they're just thoughts they're, they're trials and okay Greg sorry about that we had a little bump and so we took a time out but uh, to resume our, our thought pattern there um, relative to you know, taking these these hypotheses and these thoughts and and turning them into actionable items, um, as you as you said, you know, we're we're kind of evaluating and testing and being as mindful as possible. Where where do we go from there? How, how does it work? You know, once you've once you've gone through and say, okay, we need to modify our procedure in this area and do X. Yeah, I think that's a million-dollar question: is where do we go from here? Um, you know, what what I'm suggesting, I think what what my mentors and those I've learned from are suggesting is is um, predictability maybe being tossed out the window, uh, and that's a scary thing for many of us. Um, you know, climate change in particular uh, is something that has many of us wondering what our next steps are. Um, I, I think many of our actions in the past were built upon certain models um, that simply may not be true moving forward. And again, all that leads to is uncertainty. So I think the best thing we can do is, is again, to learn about what I often call the parameters in which in which we're working, learn about the opportunities and limitations based on soil, learn about to some degree the interaction of plant communities and wildlife communities with those soils that you have now. Um, it doesn't look like our soils necessarily are going to change that much moving forward, but what plants move in due to a changing climate. So as an example, I work with many landowners that want to actively manage their land for a variety of reasons, and that might involve commercial timber sales. Oh, okay. and, and what I often tell landowners is to, to have some reserve areas, some areas on their property of different vegetation communities that are just set-asides. They're areas that you're going to just let develop 
on their own trajectories. And the idea there is to provide yourself to some degree some fallback. Like some, a little control group type yeah, of thing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, something that may may retain seed sources, uh, uh, plants that uh, may be reduced in dominance because of your timber sale, for instance, or because of deer browse. So to always have kind of a, a bank of biodiversity on your property prior to any treatment that you might undertake, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, I think we need to hedge our bets. No. <laughs> and, and and we need to get better at hedging our bets. So less uniformity, more complexity. Um, I think some have spoken about, you know, uh, the nasty nature of some timber sales, the debris they leave on the ground, for instance. And from an ecologist perspective, we that debris has great value. And it provides that complexity, but there's also drawbacks to that debris. And and on every single property I work on, those trade-offs have to be considered between perhaps what's best for the, the property in the long run and what meets the landowner's goals. Right. When um when we talk about climate change, is there and this is, this is, again, one of these dumb bunny questions, but would you guys ever look at an ecology system, say, 500 miles south, and try to take best practices from that as it relates to the soil conditions as this trend moves north, if you will? Uh, yeah, that's actually is some of the, are some of the ideas that are, are being undertaken, is that there are projections at least in terms of habitat suitability for different organisms as um, climate changes. And so there are maps and projections for some distributions of different, for instance, tree species. What is more unknown, I would say, is how disturbances that shape forests are going to change. For instance, when I talk about disturbance, and it's anything that might change biomass, whether it be a timber sale or a, or a white-tailed deer eating a bunch of northern white cedar or a fire or a windstorm or insect outbreak. Mm. Any of these things can affect the biomass in a forest and therefore change the forest potentially. So historically, this area in northern lower Michigan, fire was a very, very important disturbance regime. Undoubtedly, fire changed in the 20th century because of humans. Fire is going to change in the 21st century perhaps because of humans, but outside of our maybe control, just throwing something out there. Other things that might be a disturbance that are outside of our control that might shape things are wind or wind patterns, uh, whether we get bigger wind events, fewer wind events, more sporadic wind events. Same could be said about rain events, whether we get uh, rain that comes in big spurts rather than uniformly across seasons, etc. All these things have the potential of really changing plant communities and changing how we manage these plant communities. So uh, that's, I would say right now, I think that's one of the great unknowns is the changes in those kind of events. Yeah. When, 
you, and you you spoke you mentioned bugs and and we think about you know invasive species in the river like the New Zealand mud snail and but there are other little buglies that are in our forests that are not doing us any favors than the more uh, emerald ash borer kind of pops into mind um, and we've had a lot of uh, talk uh, in this area uh, recently with the uh, the gypsy or the sponge moth if you will I think that's the new PC thing but um, would it you know are, are so so two, twofold what are some of the other creatures that we need to worry about and relative to this um, moth situation do they really destroy trees or do they just make them look nasty well the answer your your last question um gypsy moth spongy moth as you correctly stated um are a disturbance agent that are not native to this area and been, been around since probably 1950s if not earlier <clears throat> their impact likely are overblown um on our area of forest. They undoubtedly uh, make trees look nasty. They make a mess in people's yards and on their houses and their porches, etc. But if we take our non-native pathogens and other organisms that are causing issues in our, our forests and e other ecosystems, if we take them all, we could put them on a gradient from um, less likely to cause quote-unquote great problems to more likely to cause uh, quote-unquote great problems. So no two organisms are, are, are quite the same in terms of impacts. And I'll also point out that no two landowners have exactly the same values. So, <laughs> okay. you know, it's part of that comes into play here is what are our value systems. But at the end of the day, insects bugs as some people might call them are critical components of any ecosystem to understand how insects differ and how they interact with our ecosystems is i think one of the challenges in terms of education and outreach to landowners because they're all not the same in terms of effects and therefore they shouldn't be all treated the same i see an animosity toward any insect that might eat a leaf of a tree. So they're inconvenient, they're ugly, but they're not necessarily as bad as other things. That may Correct, happen. and ha ha they might even be very, very important for the forest, and they just so happen to like that leaf and or tree species. So yeah, exactly. So like many things, if it's uncomfortable, we don't want to deal with it and get it out of our face. <laughs> I think you said it well, <laughs> right? Uh, but I will say, you know, there, there's a pathogen, for instance, uh, called oak wilt. It's a uh, fungal pathogen. Um, whether or not it's native to North America, I think there is still potentially some debate on that. But it is a major impact in oak forests, and our area of northern Lower Michigan is perhaps even more susceptible to this pathogen because our forests have become oak dominated much, much more so than they were historically. People like oak, uh, a lot of wildlife species of value like acorns, mm -hmm. therefore we manage for more oak. Mm -hmm. And in many ways our past management, this is an example of how we've painted ourselves into a corner. Okay. Just simply waiting for the right pathogen to show up to really impact us 
severely. I'm on many, many properties where their forest is primarily oak. And if oak wilt moves in, um, their world changes and changes quickly. You get a surplus of firewood. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. What, so what about maples? I mean, we're blessed. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's topical. The The forests are just on fire right now. And I, I mean, colorfully, not uh, literally. <laughs> but uh, how does that all fit into the equation? Well, that's a great point. Uh, I, I spent most of my career in the Upper Peninsula uh, and the Western half of the UP really is, is maple dominated in many areas. And there are some stands over in the West UP that are almost pure sugar maple. Uh, they're sugar maple because some of that maple grows exceptionally valuable uh, saw timber. And, um, and unfortunately, like our oak stands down here, they are maple dominated. They're simply in a condition now that they're set up for failure if we get a pathogen in here that really likes sugar maple. So mm. my take home message again is, is complexity. Every soil has a certain plant community or a range of plant communities that may grow on it. We need to understand that range of possibilities and try to get some complexity to some diversity out there to hedge our bets. Do not paint yourself into a corner by reducing diversity on on your property. So so folks would be well well placed to uh, consider other plantings. Absolutely. Across Michigan, um, many conifers were historically dominated. And again, I think many of those conifers are perfectly suited. Eastern white pine, for instance, our state tree species are are, are um, what do they call it? Michigan's tree, tree, oh, state tree, state tree. That's there right. Okay. Uh, you know, is perfectly suited to meet a lot of these needs. So yeah, if, if you got to do some active planting because you've lost your seed source, you bet. Let's get some conifers in those deciduous stands. Let's get some deciduous species into our plantations or our conifer stands. So. Why do jack pines rate on your conifer scale? <laughs> well, jack, jack pine's an interesting one because of all the, the forest types we have here in Michigan, jack pine evolved with the most severe one, would say, disturbance regime, stand replacing fire. Um, you know, in a world of fire, uh, jack pine fires are ones you want to be very careful with. A lot of energy, they can move fast, they can get up in the crowns. So, but that's how that tree species really evolved. So, well, they need the heat for their seeds to correct do their thing. We call right? that serotony. And, and uh, you know, some, some jack pine, for instance, some of the jack pine further north don't need the heat from fire, but they get the heat just from the environment around them. Ah. But they still need some heat to open up those cones. Okay. But down here, yeah, those, those jack pine cones seem to be very serotonous. They need the heat from fire to open up. Uh, jack pine, too, is supposedly marching north. Uh, a lot of those models looking for where jack pine will be in the future has it decreasing here in Michigan, for instance, and increasing in Minnesota. No if you want to find where most of the jack pine is in North America, you head to our neighbors up north in Canada. That's where mass vast majority of the jack pine is. Really? Yeah. So, you know, we are kind of the uh, United States uh, hot spot for jack pine. You guys take it for granted here. Yeah. But, uh, well, but 
No one else. That, that has a favorable connotation to it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. But uh, Jack Pine, you know, a lot of people don't give it credit. It's short-lived. Uh, some might, not, might say it's not the most attractive conifer, but uh, it's unique in many ways. I'd agree with that. Um, <laughs> around here, I've been told that, you know, I don't know anything, but I've been told that uh, they did that. A lot of the Jack Pine have been planted in a plantation fashion because of the Kirtland Warbler. Correct. And... Uh, and the other thing I've been told is these damn gnats we have here are somehow it's associated with the jack pines. Is it, you know, can you, can you clear that up for I, me? No, I, I cannot clear that, that up. Awesome. You have gnats that most people don't like, and you have some jack pine that a lot of people don't like. The combination of those two or the interaction, I have no idea. No, okay. Well, that one remains a mystery. Then. Yes, okay. it does. Well, it's good. Life's got to have a few mysteries. We don't want to solve everything just right away. The, um, <laughs> that's pretty wild. What, um... With the, uh, <laughs> kind of lost my track there, but you, you were talking about oak and, you know, a lot of us are accustomed to, you know, where, where they've come through and caught, you see scrub oak popping up, uh, as the, as the re, as the jack pine repopulates, uh, but the oak that's subject to the oak, well, that's just more of a traditional oak, is it not? Well, it's mostly the the. Or is uh, it unique to all spe all species? Mostly, it's uh, uh, species within the red oak group. So that would be our northern red oak, our our black oak, uh, I believe our our northern pin oak, and, and any hybrids that come from those species. So our white oak uh, is less susceptible. Okay. Uh, interestingly, white oak also looks better on climate models. So if somebody has soils that like uh, grow oak and like oak, uh, white oak may be more your friend moving forward. Okay. Good to know. Well, that propagates through the root system too, right? Yes. They all um, are stump sprouters, meaning, you know, when you cut an individual plant, you actually don't kill the plant. It just comes back from its roots. And in a, um, and in a broader picture, that gets into how the whole landscape here has changed. So you think of you take an oak and you cut it and it stump sprouts, right? The conifers have to reproduce by seed. So historically, in the turn of the 20th century, we cut all those conifers, removed all those seed-producing mature trees, and then all the stump sprouting species, the oaks, the aspen, the deciduous, came back and took over these sites. Mm. So as you drive around northern Michigan, you're seeing a lot fewer conifers than we might have seen in, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And uh, we can see that same effect on, on an individual property after a timber sale. You go in and you cut the conifers. Uh, the conifers may have a diff more difficult time coming back than, for instance, the oak, if we cut them, that simply re-sprout. Hmm. Fascinating. A lot to think about. That's the beauty of the profession. Yes. Yeah. A lot to think about. It, it is... It, all these different variables and, you know, trying to solve for the future, that's, it's, it's, it's becoming readily apparent just how challenging things can be. I think you have to become comfortable with uncertainty. Yeah. If, if uh, you, you need two plus two equals four in a profession, I don't think my profession's a perfect one for you. I think that's how we taught it. Okay. Historically. I, I my, Especially forestry comes from a German tradition. 
oh. the Black Forest. Okay. So they brought a lot of that engineering mentality over to the United States. Leopold, not Leopold, but Pinchot and others did uh, in the early 20th century. You, it's not surprising then that uh, agricultural schools have forestry schools in them and engineering schools have forestry schools in them. Mm. So University of Michigan had one of the oldest or first forestry schools in the country. It no longer has one. Uh, I think Yale was the very first. Yale still has a school of forestry, I believe. Wow. I don't know how dirty the hands of those Yaleys <laughs> get. I don't think they get that dirty. I ain't saying nothing. Uh, right? <laughs> but it's interesting. There is a, a long history of forestry in particular and wildlife management, I'll say, that is agricultural in nature or engineering in nature and um, I, slowly but surely it's shifting over to more ecological in nature and that's the cultural um, world that the profession now exists in when you know up here in our neck of the woods we have a lot of um, I don't know what the proper way to say it so I'll just try to scramble through it um, purposely planted CCC for us and would would those be reflective of some of that German oh absolutely philosophy? those would be reflective of that dress and, right dress and right. I bet you if you 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 measure the distance between those trees you'll find uniformity across the stand that's, like that's you kind of believe. what I was thinking yeah yeah <laughs> it's pretty impressive it is very impressive they did that on purpose <laughs> yeah right I was in the woods saying gee nature's great yeah. <laughs> but my my German ancestors would be very very proud of those forests oh, I bet. Uh, and when I talk about changing them um, I myself come into uh, conflict with even some in my own family oh wow yeah. okay does your family have a, a history in forestry my grandfather was a classic Pinchot kind of utilitarian he was a banker by nature and he acquired properties through the old saving and loan, uh, you, okay. you didn't make your loan, you uh, your piece of property, I think, yeah. was taken over. <laughs> so, yeah, he he had uh, a bit of property, and my sister and I, a couple of us in the family, still own some of that family oh, forest that's land. Pretty cool. And I think I think that perhaps is one of those experiences that shape my outlook to landowners. That in many ways I can relate to what they're dealing with. I too have to pay taxes on my forest property. I too have issues of invasive plants running amok. Uh, I too have to struggle sometimes to getting a timber sale done to meet goals and objectives. So I think in many ways it helps ground me a little bit. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty very cool. Well, so, so what's next for you, Greg? Is it not necessarily for the the arts and the sciences that you pursue, but but for you, uh, I never know. <laughs> I there we go. I, Stay flex flexible. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I had I had uh, at least two different careers now, and I if I was 18 years old again, I would have never predicted any of this. So uh, you never know what's behind door number one, two, or three. Okay. But you never hesitate open them up. So we will we will see. Okay. Well, that's fair. What you know, and I think I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, offer your insight to this up. I mean, you just talked about being eighteen again and 
maybe just starting your schooling, um, any pointers to young listeners that might be pursuing a career in this direction? Well, that's a, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess I, I got a few thoughts. I will say that working with young professionals, without a doubt, uh, has been the greatest pleasure in my career. And now that I'm, I've done this for a few years, to think that some of those young professionals are themselves in leadership positions is a great pleasure. Um, what I will say is uh, encourage your curiosity. Um, writing a complete sentence still has value in yes, the world. Absolutely. Uh, no matter what job you get, uh, never settle uh, for learning. Um, we never know it all when we come out of school and we'll never know it all when we go um, into the soil, back into the soil. So uh, continue to learn and strive to learn. Right on. That's good advice for anybody in any path. Yeah. Well, excellent. Greg, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us. Um, I feel enlightened. Richard? Yeah, you know, if you're me, you're always in a position to learn something. <laughs> Well, good, Greg. Um, any any um, anything else on, on our way out? Uh, landowner advice. Uh, if you could click your heels, one magic wish type of stuff. Well, what I'll say to those landowners here in Michigan is go look up uh, the forestry assistance program. Just Google that, um, and go look up your local conservation district. Uh, there are people out there who again have been paid by your tax dollars to help you out, uh, go search them out and uh, ask for uh, any assistance that you think you might might need. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Greg. Great job, sir. Thank you. Much obliged. Thank you, Greg. All right, listeners, we'll be back next week. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as Richard and I did. Um, we've got, uh, as we alluded to at the beginning of the podcast, a, uh, a number of... Uh, recordings in queue so i guess uh kind of like a netflix drop we're gonna drop a bunch of podcasts here real soon so uh starting with greg right here so keep listening stay tuned and uh we've got a couple of fun surprises for you until then mind your backcast <laughs>